where permafrost thaws and the tundra burns, where glaciers are melting at a pace unprecedented in modern times. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words, and yet I'm one of the lucky ones. Rubbish that don't go in the bin, materials we could use again that we call recycling. Like paper, cardboard, plastic too, glass and metal tins. Use the hashtag climate change to tell the world about a change you think would have a positive impact. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is money. Man, I forgot to ask for no plastic straw, but it's 2022, this shouldn't be happening. Things I don't buy anymore thanks to sustainable living. Paper napkins. We missed the deadline on reversing climate change, so now we can just relax and have fun. 120 nations came together in an effort to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. Come with me to my favorite refill shop here in Arkansas. Stand any chance of saving what remains of our frozen planet and saving ourselves from the devastating consequences. As little as 8.4% of our discarded plastic went through that magic recycling process. We must stick to this commitment and honor it, no matter how challenging it might be. The scale and the speed of it just defies belief. No, the main driver of climate change is human activities, it's human emissions. Ecological breakdown, we're facing the biggest crisis humanity has ever encountered. Uh, being honest, I think the first thing when someone says the word climate change, I feel is a slight sense of boredom. That particular phrase, when I hear it, my ears don't perk up. I don't think like, oh yeah, I think like, ugh. My name is Tilly Robinson, and you're listening to the first episode of The Water We Swim In, a new mini-series all about climate change. Sort of. Not the climate change we know already. David Attenborough and plastic pollution, hydrogen cars and melting ice caps. Because I think we already know all about that side of climate change. We know the environment is being destroyed, we know that we're running out of time, and we know what we're supposed to be doing about it. It's left a lot of us feeling almost bored by this big, terrifying thing that threatens our existence. So in this introductory episode, we're going to start at the beginning and try and figure out why this is. We're going to dissect our current approach to climate change and find out what we need to do to stop feeling this way. And the series? Well, the series is more about you than it is about an environmental issue. Your life, the society you live in, and what you've agreed to without knowing it. Because, incidentally, that's the only way we're going to solve this. And it just so happens that it's a hell of a lot more interesting, too. Part 1 doing a dug. I first meet Tomair in 2020, before the first lockdown. She arrives at my flat, long limbs sticking out of this big pink dress with sequin flowers on it, absolutely soaked through. She got caught in a torrential downpour on her journey, and the first thing she does is wring her hair out in my bathroom sink. She's 19, but perching bedraggled on my sofa, she reads younger. I wanted to be a fashion designer, like, I was known for that. Like, friends and family were like, yeah, you're going to be a fashion designer and have, like, catwalks. And, like, now I'm like, I went to London Fashion Week in September as part of a funeral march. <laughs> I turned up and, like, did a die-in on the floor because I'm like, how are there people walking down a catwalk when people... Oh, just... Yeah. Like, I've had to shift my whole life. This is why I'm meeting with Tom Eyre. Because, like she says, she's all in. She shifted her whole life to do something about climate change. When I finished my master's in environmental policy, I was faced with the conundrum of what next? The course had given me a certain amount of specific climate-related knowledge, you know, stuff like carbon capture technology, fishery management, EU law, which indicated several specific career paths, but it didn't tell me which one I should take or, really, ironically, what to do about climate change. So I did what any aimless millennial postgrad would do in my place, which was scroll on Instagram, looking at the lives of eco-influencers who had it all together. Hi, my name's Tomea Gregory. I'm an artist. Tomea's a committed and certain person. It seems that she always has been. As a little girl, she was pretty definite about what she wanted to be when she grew up. 
At 11, she started a blog called Tolly Dolly Posh. She took it seriously. There are so many articles it takes about half an hour to scroll back to her first one. Harry Styles and Taylor Swift, get the look, that kind of thing. And as she gets older, the topics mature. London Fashion Week reviews. But she's still singular, focused, certain about her life's aims. But then, at 18, her posts change. Tomea starts understanding the climate crisis, and I mean really understanding it, the full force of what it means, what it threatens. And she finds out that the fashion industry is a major contributor. And the bottom kind of falls out of her world. And then, yeah, being terrified of what's going to happen in the future. And like an energy thing as well. Like, I don't want to waste my energy on something that could potentially either inflict more harm or... It's just like a waste of time in what time we have left. Like, sounds so dark and depressing, but it's kind of like all these things come together. And it's like, actually, you know, there's a pretty clear answer to this, you know, dilemma I'm having. And the answer is keep going with, you know, trying to make the world better. And she changes direction immediately. I mean, she totally upends her life's goals in order to concentrate on helping solve this crisis. That's how seriously she takes it. She starts making art about climate change, designing posters for protests, writing poems. And importantly, she uses her platform to spread the message. Her posts now read, how do you spot greenwashing and top tips for ethical clothing on a budget. I will wake up with the sun dappled across me, a breeze filtering through a window, leaves rustling in the wind. I will wake up and hold my children and run my fingers through their hair. And, of course, she does the obvious thing, what we all do. She turns her focus onto herself her individual responsibility and behaviour. And I started with my clothes and where I was shopping and what I was buying. I feel very confident in kind of talking about how people can also make those changes within fashion. But then I kind of reached this point where I was getting so bogged down in, okay, what more can I do? So I've kind of checked the box off when it comes to my clothes. So what do I do now? I look at my food. I turn vegetarian. Okay, At some point, I will be vegan, (laughs) fully vegan. Tamara is undeniably passionate about climate change, so I kind of thought she'd have this side of things down. When she talks about lifestyle changes, she just seems tired. And it's kind of, you go through that kind of mental list and and then you realise all these things that are really difficult to change or you just don't know when you'll ever get there. Like, for example, for me, one thing I would find really hard to do right now is um, commit to going flight free because I have family and friends who live abroad and I don't have the money to like go on a train journey really frequently to go see them. So it's kind of like, well, what other option do I have? And that's when I knew there was a problem sitting soggily on my sofa because even Tolmea, one of the most emotionally engaged people I've ever met, who actually cries when she reads headlines and is fully committed to the cause, is failing to complete the what-we-should-all-do-climate-change-to-do list. We all know the things on that list. You know, avoid red meat, vegetables flown from Mexico, packaging, lights left on, taps left running, heating on too often, takeaway plastic, cheap clothes, impulse buys, useless Christmas presents, clicks on Amazon. And obviously, she's not the only one struggling with completing it. Most of us do. Recycling a yoghurt pot. And I'm like, I should rinse out that yoghurt pot and recycle it because that's me being a good citizen. But I just can't be bothered, even though I know it's absolute minimal effort on my part. Ought to, should do, but can't be bothered. But Tolmea shows us that this isn't a problem with how much we care. Because she cares the most and she still struggles. She still feels like it's futile. So what's the problem with the list? Given that focusing on individual behaviour is... I'd say our first instinct when it comes to tackling the climate crisis, it's probably not a bad idea to check the logic we're following. Why is it our first port of call? Well, what's the first thing you notice about the list? It is, almost exclusively, even if you expand it beyond the stuff I've mentioned, a list of things not to buy. It's a list of don'ts for a consumer. And that makes sense. We are consumers and we live in a consumer society. That's got to be a big component in this, right? So let's talk about that. How did we get here? Time for a little history recap. Let's go back to the 18th century. Think kings in big curly wigs. 
The Industrial Revolution was kicking off, which meant that our ability to manufacture stuff was exploding. There was new power and bigger factories, which meant goods were being produced faster than ever before, and crucially, cheaper than ever before. Which meant suddenly a quality of life, previously unavailable to huge swathes of the population, was within reach for people. And this happened at an interesting point in history because religion was just starting to loosen its grip on the culture. For the first time, people started feeling uncertain about the promises of an afterlife and therefore were less willing to sacrifice pleasure and enjoyment in this life. So, suddenly, for a lot of people, the aim became less about achieving salvation and more about achieving a better quality of life. And how do you do that? Own more stuff. Economists observed people stuffing their pockets with little conveniences, like tweezer cases and elaborate snuff boxes, and then buying coats with more pockets to carry even more. And this was encouraged because manufacturers, thanks to this explosion in industry, were producing more products than there was a demand for, so they had to somehow keep generating buyers. They encouraged people to buy not just what they needed, but what they wanted. Consumerism had arrived and it became the backbone of our economy. Which is all well and good. Except, of course, what allowed the Industrial Revolution to happen was fossil fuels. You can't really overstate what a massive change fossil fuels allowed. Before then, we'd been pretty limited in our energy use. Think about it this way. Before fossil fuels, we'd had a fixed energy chain. We get, I think, pretty much all of our energy from the sun. It beams down grows plants which are eaten by us or animals that we then eat and then we have the energy to make stuff so our industry is limited to human labor that's why building crazy things like the pyramids requires slaves lots of energy lots of human labor but then we found this cheat code coal you probably remember from biology class that coal is just organic matter that's been compressed for about 300 million years but if you think of it like ancient sunlight or sunlight concentrate, then suddenly it makes sense as to why it's so great. You get to skip that whole restricting energy chain. Suddenly, you can make loads of stuff. In fact, one barrel of oil holds as much energy as one man could produce over 10 years of hard manual labour. So fossil fuels allowed us to expand beyond the constraints of human energy. But they also release carbon and methane when they burn, which you probably know as the greenhouse gases. They are literally the thing causing our climate to change. And Tolmea knows this. And so do we, on some level, which is why we've arrived at this approach. The things that we buy are made using fossil fuels. Fossil fuels cause climate change, and therefore, in order to mitigate climate change, we need to consume less. Especially less of the things that emit a lot of fossil fuels when they're made or used. The logic's pretty sound. We're trying to reduce our carbon footprint. What size is your carbon footprint? Ah, the carbon footprint's there. That I don't know. Whatever it is, the whole population of the world make that a very, very big number. How much carbon I produce? Is that it? You mean the effect that my living has on the Earth in terms of the products I consume? This approach is called conscious consumerism. And it makes sense. So then, what's the problem? Why are we not really doing it very well? despite the fact that our lives depend on it, why does it make even the people who do do it, like Tolmea, feel exhausted and helpless instead of empowered? I mean, maybe it's just human nature and unwillingness to give up on our little conveniences. Or maybe it's that deep down, Tolmea suspects that all her effort, all her sacrifice and inconvenience and sheer goodness isn't enough. I wanted to find out, so to do that, I needed to talk to someone well-versed in subjects I wasn't. Subjects like economics and consumption. I, I'm Simon Mayer. I'm a research fellow at the Centre for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity at the University of Surrey. And I'm also uh, a teaching fellow at the University of Salford. I'm sitting with Simon in his house in Doncaster. I'd read an article he'd written and I wanted to talk to him about it. I was expecting someone severe and dry, you know, someone who looks well-versed in economics and consumption. But Simon was softly spoken with this curly shoulder-length hair and a taste for strong knitwear. First of all, 
he points out to me. Using conscious consumerism, what's the end goal for someone who really cares, someone like Tolmeyer? What's the most you can do? Well, obviously the more you care, the smaller your footprint gets, right? So your goal should be to reduce your carbon footprint to nothing. Zero carbon, zero waste. And apparently, that's a problem. I would say it would be impossible to live a completely zero carbon or zero waste life while remaining kind of a part of a modern capitalist economy. The only way you could do that would be to entirely remove yourself from society. Like maybe if you went and lived, uh, I don't know, on a hill in the Scottish Highlands and you somehow managed to grow all your own food and you never really interacted with anybody else, you could probably do zero waste, zero carbon, or as close to it as possible. But that would be absolutely knackering. Those, those things are really hard to do. Like, I know people who do try to live as sustainably as possible, as low carbon as possible, and they're often really tired and because it's so hard. Simon's article, the one that led me to him, was about the TV show The Good Place with Kristen Bell. It's a comedy set in the afterlife, a lovable gang of misfits try and escape eternal damnation. It all comes down to a point system. Everything we do has moral points attached to it, plus or minus, depending on whether what you're doing is good or bad. If, when you die, you have enough points, you get into the good place. And if not, bad luck. Flames and pitchforks in the bad place it is. In this one episode, they find the one living man, Doug, who, in a flash of religious inspiration as a teen, has figured the system out. Aware of how it works and how high the stakes are, he lives his whole life in a bid to gain points. This means he ends up living basically how we'd have to, alone, in the woods, eating radishes and lentils. Oh, boy, that has an interesting aftertaste. Is that from a nearby river? Oh, no. Why take fresh water away from the beavers and the fish? Uh, No, I have my composting toilet hooked up to a water filtration system. This is because the world in which the characters live is so complex that almost anything they do has a negative impact. And our world's the same. I mean, when we buy vegan food, it's wrapped in plastic and filled with palm oil, or we take Tomea's advice and avoid fast fashion, fork out for some new organic clothes, but we don't realise that each item uses nearly 150 litres of water to make or has flown from India. Or we might know something about the fact that technology uses unsustainably mined materials, but our phones are deliberately designed to stop working after a few years, so we keep buying them, because of course we do. It's basically really difficult to get it right. So the only truly good option is to extract yourself completely. This is partly because actually the world is so complex and our consumption is so complex. So when you choose to buy something, you can never really know exactly what went into the production process. You can't really know whether something was produced using lots of coal or using lots of uh, renewable energy. But here's the thing. In The Good Place, they find out that actually the system's so complex that even Doug, someone who's extracted himself from society almost completely, is headed for hell. They find out the system is broken. And this is what Simon's trying to tell us. We're doing a Doug. And so that can mean that you spend a lot of time and energy trying to make what you think are really good consumption decisions, and actually it turns out they're not that effective anyway. And the reason they're not that effective is because The entire system is essentially set up in a way that kind of damages the climate. So 80% of the uh, world's energy use is fossil fuels, so it's carbon emitting. So there's no way that you as a consumer can wipe out all that 80% of global energy use. It's just impossible from a consumption point of view. The entire system is essentially set up in a way that damages the climate. Okay, so... That sounds like the bottom line. But I came away from that interview still not really understanding what Simon was telling me. I still felt like, okay, it's it's difficult to do this, but it's within our power still to get down to zero carbon, zero waste, if we really wanted to. It's just complex. And then I read about this MIT study and realised I'd missed the point entirely. Here's Matthew, another writer on the series. He's the one who researched the study. Okay, so... The professor of this MIT class wanted to find out how far someone's consumption choices affected their carbon footprint. So they decided to run a statistical analysis to calculate and compare different people and their lifestyles. 
They covered a big range of people, housewives to Buddhist monks, and obviously the results varied. If you're a multimillionaire, you're probably consuming a hell of a lot more than if you're homeless. But the finding that surprised the professor was that even the homeless man has a big carbon footprint. An American who has no money, no home, makes no purchases, who eats in soup kitchens and sleeps in shelters, their carbon footprint is over double the global average. A homeless man still has a massive carbon footprint. And this is because he's still part of the US system. He still has access to all those government services that come with that. The study showed it's like there's a floor you can't fall below. You personally may not buy much or anything, but you exist within this larger system. And that system keeps whirring on, burning thousands of tons of fossil fuels, regardless of your personal choices. So Simon's right. You could do a dug and remove yourself entirely from society. And still, your bad points or your carbon footprint in this case would be racking up. Growing lentils isn't going to solve that. So maybe this is why we're resisting committing ourselves to going zero carbon. We know on some level that it's just going to be a lot of hard work getting us nowhere. We have so little time to cut emissions, pretty much everyone would have to commit, like Doug, right now. And will they? Will they look at you in your hut on the Scottish Highlands and say, yeah, I'll do that? And people are starting to realise this. Leading a sustainable lifestyle is an important first step, but what we really need is radical, sweeping change to tackle this climate crisis. Systems change, not climate change. Systems change, not climate One of the brilliant slogans of the youth climate strikes has been system change, not climate change. They've exactly hit the nail on the head there. People are starting to realise that in order to really change things, we need to focus on how that system, the one that's just whirring on without us, works. In order to make it possible for people to live sustainable lifestyles and still remain a part of society, we need things like policy changes to support it. We need laws in place. We need infrastructure. We need renewable energy. It would suddenly speed things up if we focused on that, instead of putting all the onus on the individual, instead of obsessing over our carbon footprints. But... Maybe that's exactly why this obsession has been encouraged. What size is your carbon footprint? Ah, the carbon footprint's there. That I don't know. Whatever it is, the whole population of the world make that a very, very big number. This clip, which I played earlier, is from an advert run by BP, British Petroleum, the second largest non-state-owned oil company in the world. And... In 2003, they hired a top PR company to help them with their image. And this is what they came up with. A campaign to divert attention away from them. Away from policies and regulations that would put the responsibility on them. And to instead offer a cool new tool, a carbon footprint calculator, for the public. It's considered one of the most effective PR campaigns ever run. BP who have this year announced record profits and plan to scale back their investments into renewables, have successfully managed to guide the conversation around climate action. They very purposefully coined and marketed a term that shifted focus from them to us. And it worked. We accepted the responsibility and dutifully started measuring our own personal consumption, trying to be as good as possible. Some of us do this casually, and some of us, like Tolmea, try and commit ourselves to it utterly. But we all struggle with it, because we're all increasingly afflicted by the suspicion, correct as it turns out, that our effort is misguided, that our hard work isn't paying off, that, like Doug from The Good Place, we can never quite be good enough. Part 2 the complacency of tweaking. There's a town called Orangeburg in South Carolina. It has a real all-American feel to it. Squat buildings, red brick town squares with those tall statues at their centre. And the Adisto River runs through it like a glistening snake with its wide banks and dark talon-stained waters. In the 1950s, this town was home to a boy called Gus Speth. He lived with his family in a small agricultural community and he passed his childhood like a lot of little boys do, causing trouble. 
He nearly drowned in the Odista River. He got caught by police shooting out streetlights with his BB gun. And he was sent to the principal's office for fighting Bobby Stokes. If you want All-American, Gus is it. During bedtime prayers, his grandfather apparently once said to him, Son, when you grow up, you're either going to be president or in jail. Turns out, he was almost right on both accounts. When Gus was little, just after the war had ended, environmentalism wasn't really a thing. Nationally, the focus was on boosting the economy. Bigger industry, bigger agriculture, more chemicals. The side effects weren't really given much for thought. Similarly, in the Speth household, there wasn't much talk of nature or conservation, but he was surrounded by it. Swimming in the river every day, hunting, fishing out on the lake at his grandfather's. But one day, he went down to the lake and found that it was closed. Warning signs had been hung up and the water smelled rancid. Dead, he puts it. A nearby factory had dumped its waste into it. And it wasn't just his grandfather's lake. There was also weird grey foam in the river and thick smells hanging low over the towns that he loved. And before long, Gus started noticing pollution everywhere. He wasn't the only one. By the time Gus was a young man leaving Orangeburg to study law at Yale, a growing consciousness of the environment had begun to form. The gravity of the message of Earth Day still came through. Act or die. Good evening. A unique day in American history is... In 1917, millions of people took to the street as part of the first Earth Day, and they had one demand. Start taking the environment into account. Stop protecting it. Well, Gus had just graduated from Yale with flying colours and he'd been raised as an idealist. And he thought, yeah, I can do something about this. Here he is in an interview with Harry Chrysler. And we obviously were children of the 60s. Uh, we were motivated to uh, believe that uh, we could change the world, uh, that we could use government as an instrument to change the world. We believed that we could create a federal environmental law that would really uh, save the environment. So, that year, at the age of 28, he decided to found an environmental advocacy group, the NRDC, the Natural Resource Defence Council, basically to lobby the government to pass environmental laws. And pretty quickly, they saw two major successes, the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. And it felt good. Gus had helped protect his grandfather's lake. But he wasn't finished. He realised that government was where a lot of change happens, behind closed doors, talking to powerful people. So he didn't mess about. He got a job heading the Council on Environmental Quality for the President of the United States. In fact, it was him who received a report written by a group of concerned scientists. And it was him who arranged a meeting with President Jimmy Carter. And it was him who said, Sir, I think we should be worried about this climate change. So his grandfather was pretty close. One of the reasons Gus is such an interesting character is because he's an environmental advocate who's been so successful. If you want to look at altering the system, Gus is your man. He knew early on what the rest of us are just only beginning to cotton on to, that in order to really initiate change, you need that change to happen at a higher level. He made sure that he got into the rooms where decisions were being made. Because otherwise, I mean, I probably don't have to tell you, it's a pretty daunting prospect, trying to enact policies and laws if you're just a regular Joe. And this sort of explains our second most common approach to climate change mitigation, which is to hope that there are people who know what they're doing, that there are intelligent, committed people like Gus who work in charities and international bodies and the government and who dedicate their lives to caring professionally about the climate. And we support them by... You know, reading articles, voting, posting infographics on Instagram, going to maybe a couple of protests a year, and just generally hoping that they've got this. And again, there is logic to this. We can't really enact policies. Gus and people in positions of power can. And it's been going okay. I mean, if you trace the course of Gus's career, you can see the environmental movement growing and gathering pace alongside him is comforting. I mean, we've come so far in the span of one man's lifetime from not really thinking about the environment to, in 2015, one of the biggest shows of global cooperation ever seen. Never before has a responsibility so great been in the hands of so few. The world is looking to you. The world is counting on you the Paris Agreement. 
If you're not sure what went on there, it was a moment where the whole world held its breath, waiting to see whether its leaders would heed the warnings from scientists. The IPCC, that's the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, told world leaders that if they wanted to prevent civilization collapse, it was absolutely necessary to stop the global temperature from rising. They said that the highest the temperature should be allowed to rise was 1.5 degrees. And miraculously, the world leaders managed to reach an agreement. 193 out of 197 nations agreed to work towards the goal of limiting our temperature rise to 1.5 degrees, with a hard limit of 2 degrees. So we have a solid movement. And the people in charge, the people with the power to make the changes that we need, are taking climate change seriously. We have net zero plans, we have speeches, we have targets. And yet, and yet there's still this feeling of apathy. You know, like, maybe we have to trust these agreements and these declarations, but actually, it's quite hard to shake the feeling that the situation isn't fully in hand. One of the reasons that Gustav Speth is interesting is because he's been so successful, because of the presidential side of his personality, his storied career. But I wasn't interested in him for that. I was more interested in why he's chosen to turn his back on it. I first heard about Gus from economist Peter Victor, who I was interviewing for another episode. He has held some of the most senior positions in environment in his career, uh, he was head of, I think he was head of the UNDP, advisor to the US government on many occasions, very senior academic. Uh, and he, he became quite radical. And this is unusual. People don't tend to go that way. People don't tend to go that way. And nobody expected it of Gus. When Times Magazine wrote about him, they called him the ultimate insider. He was a real establishment figure, the president's man. And then to hear that he'd gone rogue become a radical. I mean, you tell me you wouldn't be intrigued. I'll tell you more about what he's up to these days later on in the episode. But for now, I want to focus on what he's left behind and why. After he'd added a few more groundbreaking roles to his CV, he'd founded the World Resources Institute, one of the biggest environmental think tanks in the world, and he'd worked for the UN for 20 years, Gus decided it was time to go back to Yale to teach other young idealists how to protect the environment. Who would be better to do that than him, right? So, he began by collating a history of both his career and the movement in general, going through its wins and summing up its tactics. But then, he stopped dead in his tracks. The longer that he looked at his laudable history, the more that he felt something wasn't right. Here, in front of him, was a record of victory after victory, secured by him and his colleagues, but... It was also a history of the world on a downward trajectory, barreling towards environmental catastrophe and civilization collapse. He described it as being mugged by reality, that he realized we were winning the movement, but losing the planet. Is that true? May I just say to all uh, delegates, um, I apologize for the way this process has unfolded, and uh, I am deeply sorry. COP26, the next big conference after the Paris Agreement, held in Glasgow a couple of years ago. And speaking is Alok Sharma, the president of the event. And as he makes his closing statements, he's not looking forward, chest pumped, gesticulating like all the other speeches that were made. Instead, his head is bowed and he apologises. I also understand the, the deep disappointment. But I think, as you have noted, it's also vital that we... Um, Protect this package. And then he chokes up and actually has to stop talking. He was crying because the agreement to phase out coal had failed in the last moments of the meeting. And he was crying potentially because despite all the power held in those rooms, we're not on track for 1.5 degrees. We're on track for 2.7, which will be a disaster. Just to give you some idea, 2.7 degrees is a fair bit after the ice sheets have begun their collapse, after 400 million more people will suffer from water scarcity, after the major equatorial cities become unlivable, 
And just before Southern Europe is in a state of permanent drought and all our food security goes up in smoke. So that's not great. And our all-important 1.5 degree limit? We're set to pass it in the next five years. And the UK is very much a part of that issue. According to a recent analysis, we're not on track to meet our targets. In fact, only 28% of the necessary policies are confirmed. So perhaps that feeling, that worry that things aren't in hand, is based on something. But why? The environmental movement is stronger than ever, and our world leaders have acknowledged the urgency of the situation and have promised to make necessary changes. So what's going wrong? Well, I decided I wanted to put it to the man himself, the ultimate insider, Mr. James Gustav Speth. And, luckily, he agreed to speak with me. I suppose I'm wondering, what do you think now about the effectiveness of international treaties or multilateral agreements? Well, I had something to do with some of them. And um, we started out with a lot of optimism. And in my judgment, uh, it's, it's an area that is um, so many failed hopes dominate this field. Uh, are they working well? No, no. Mm-hmm. I don't think the biodiversity treaty has thus far protected a lot of biodiversity. And I think the you know, climate treaty is obviously not done a lot. I spoke to Gus over Zoom when he was on his family's farm in Texas. He still has that wholesome, all-American quality of the boy who got into trouble for fighting Bobby Stokes. Wearing a tie-dye t-shirt and a cap during our conversation, I could picture him turning frankfurters on a barbecue or mowing the lawn. But if Gus's outfit was relaxed, then his mood was contrite. These agreements that we all rely on, that he had something to do with, aren't cutting it. You know, we just have to accept that and uh, blame it on people like me who have worked on these issues uh, since the Carter administration in 1980 uh, and have so darn little to show for it. Gus, the guy who was instrumental in the conception of our modern environmental movement, has decided it doesn't work. And we had uh, very high hopes that things could be fixed, could be addressed, uh, and by working within the system. And that sense that we could work within the system to get the job done was strengthened by two of the most powerful laws that the United States has ever enacted, the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. And that had a great effect of getting a lot of the early job done. Air got better, the water got better, uh, so incentivized us to play ball within the system. We did. And for some years, it really worked. Do you remember what Gus said in that interview with Harry Chrysler? Let me refresh your memory. He said, we believed that we could use the government as an instrument to change the world. And that's what he did. And to begin with, it worked. It felt like they were changing the system, which is exactly what Simon, the economist in The Good Jumper, said we need to do. But what Gus slowly realised was that the wins that were available whilst playing ball within the system didn't equal changing it. More like tweaking it trying to get it to take the environment into account just enough to avoid catastrophe. And this became the standard approach across the majority of the environmental sector, with its lawyers, its charities and its policy specialists. If you wanted to win at all, you had to go for small victories and campaign for gradual change. So that's what happened. Because like with Tolmeyer and her conscious consumerism, in a situation as vast and as complex as this, you just do what's within your power and you go for the wins that feel obtainable. The problem is that we didn't realize that we kind of had hit the wall and that we'd done, the system had pretty much done what it could do for us. And we needed to start matching action within the system with action to change the system. And we didn't do that. Gus and Tomea may be worlds apart in their fashion sense, their ages, and most importantly, their power and influence. But they face the same issue. They're trying desperately to change the world and it feels like a lot of hard work is getting them nowhere. And that's because it turns out it doesn't matter how much power you have. You can even have all the world leaders sitting around a mahogany table. It doesn't matter if you're taking the wrong approach. Which is kind of what we're doing. We're relying on conscious consumerism and then hoping that the professional environmental sector will take care of everything else. It's not working because both approaches are only tweaking the system. And we need to change it. 
part three, effect and cause. So what do we do? How do we understand the difference between tweaking the system and really changing it? Well, talking to Gus, it's like something finally clicked into place. It struck me that if our society, our system, was a person, then we would say it was behaving self-destructively. Maybe you've had a self-destructive friend, one who drinks too much or dates terrible controlling people, or just routinely behaves in a way that makes them depressed or puts their health or even their life at risk. A friend who maybe is high-functioning, and many people say they're fine or that's just them, but you're getting worried because you can see they're headed for a breakdown or worse. Now, if you have had a friend like this, then you'll already know what it's like to try and help them. At first, it's all right, maybe even kind of satisfying. You stay up late listening to them complain about their toxic relationship. You go over to their house and tidy it up. You help them draw up a timetable to organise their week. You make them throw out their booze and their drugs. And after a while, it feels like you're making progress. Small wins. But after a bit, it becomes exhausting, dispiriting. Your friend isn't sticking to any of the resolutions you agreed on together. They always end up back where they started in the same old patterns. And it becomes apparent that there is just something in your friend, somewhere deep down where neither you nor them can see, that pushes them to do these things, to hurt themselves and those around them. And if that happens, you know that in order to really get anywhere, in order to change, they would need to address what's really going on, maybe go to therapy. Enough of dealing with the symptoms it's time to deal with the root cause. And it's this that's key to understand. Would you say that it's fair then to conceptualise maybe the environmental movement previously as trying to deal with the symptoms of a disease rather than the cause? Yeah, no, I think that's a very fair characterization. You know, we would uh, try to block a clear-cut forest destruction, you know, without dealing with the, uh, well, uh, what's motivating the destruction of the forest. What are the underlying uh, issues? And the deeper you probe those underlying issues, uh, the more you you realize that, that they're embedded in the system, that the system of political economy that we live and work in is an impediment to making progress. We have to work so hard to make effective steps forward. And what we really need is a new political economy a new system of political economy where doing the right thing for people and planet and place is the natural outcome, the easy outcome, not the most difficult possible outcome. The problem with our approach is that we're not dealing with the root causes of climate change. We're not addressing the way our system's actually been set up. Our economic model, our political ideology, our guiding philosophies and power structures the mechanisms that drive our behaviour on a systemic level. This is system change. We could leave the problem of deforestation to, I don't know, forest wardens and tree charities, but then we'd probably end up having a very small amount of brilliantly managed, dwindling forests. Because the motivation to chop down the trees is still there. You haven't addressed the root cause. And if you do, say you change the way that nature is valued within the economy, then bingo. Suddenly, it's not such an uphill struggle to stop deforestation. It won't feel like a lot of hard work is getting us nowhere. So the good news is that there are actually solutions that would work. But because they're not apolitical tweaks restricted to the environmental sector, they're not David Attenborough, plastic pollution, hydrogen cars, we don't think to look at them when talking about climate change. Here's Gus again. So let's look at it this way. You know, what is an environmental issue? Most people including me, uh, for a long time would say, well, you know, biodiversity, uh, climate change, etc. And, and that's true. That is an environmental agenda. But what if you answer the question this way? What if you say environmental agenda certainly includes those major aspects of the system you're working in that war against effective environmental action? We also don't look at these real solutions because we're told not to. Despite the fact that they're the things we need to look at in order to avert catastrophe, they're also so deeply embedded in the construction of society that changing them triggers a lot of resistance. We see this tension in our own government of wanting to deal with the symptoms of climate change without addressing the root causes. One minute, Alok Sharma is crying at the failures of a coal ban at COP26, and the next, 
his political party, the Conservatives, are announcing the opening of a new coal mine in Cumbria. The government says it wants to solve climate change, but it likes the system as it is. In fact, they're ideologically opposed to changing it. And I'd say that's pretty reminiscent of that repetitive, contradictory behaviour you might see in a self-destructive friend. It's kind of like they're happy to go as far as acknowledging, yeah, maybe there's some stuff I could work on, but I don't actually have a problem. I'm certainly not going to go to therapy. And if you push the issue, if you suggest some of the work they'll actually have to do to change, they get pissed off. They lash out. And they even try and make you sound crazy. When I first heard Peter Victor describe Gus as a radical, someone who'd gone rogue, I think I was picturing a long-bearded extremist wearing a hemp on show holed up in a cave somewhere, writing his manifesto in the blood of squirrels. But it turns out that to be considered a radical environmentalist these days, you just have to be willing to really get to grips with the problem, to grasp it at its root. One, we are the students too. We are united. Three, we will not let you build this pipeline. Earlier on, I promised that I'd let you know what Gus is up to now. Well, if you thought that his regretful tone during our interview meant that he was sitting around all day feeling sorry for himself, you'd be wrong. These days, Mr. James Gustav Speth is leaning into the rebellious side of his personality. Gus has been arrested outside the White House and thrown in jail for a short stint for protesting the Keystone XL pipeline. All right, the United States Court of Appeals is now in session. Maybe seated. Good afternoon, may it please the court. I'm Julia Olson. The stay in this case should be lifted and the case should be remanded for trials. But can a state create a danger by failure to act? No, I don't think the Fifth Amendment provides plaintiffs with a claim for pure inaction. But it does provide them a claim when the government has affirmatively acted to promote a fossil fuel energy system. He's also been called as an expert witness in the Juliana versus the United States case, which is a massive court case where 21 young plaintiffs are suing the US federal government for endangering their lives through an action on climate change. And Gus has written, pro bono, a searing indictment of this inaction to be presented in court. And it's actually now been published as well, a book called They Knew. We will not allow multi-billion dollar industries to silence our voices. We will not allow the federal government to silence our voices. We will Because he's been inside the White House and he knows the kind of changes we need to see enacted, the topics that actually need to be wrestled with, they're not going to do it willingly. There was something else that Peter said about Gus. He concluded late in his life that you can't change the system from within. He became quite radical. And this is unusual. People don't tend to go that way. He's decided you can't change the system from within. That's what his long career has taught him. When you want change on a deep level, pressure has to be applied externally. So that means that our approach, relying on the professionalised environmental movement and those already in power, isn't going to work. But it also means there is a role for us that actually could work. We may not be in a position to literally enact policies and laws and new infrastructure, but we can force issues into the spotlight, apply pressure. And doing that, engaging in political activism, campaigning, organising, is something that actually needs a relatively small amount of people to have a really big effect. Which is why the ultimate insider feels he's more useful on the outside. They're actually IKEA shelves (laughs) that I was supposed to put up in my flat, but then like had real struggles with like putting them into the walls, like the brackets didn't work and stuff like that. Three years after I first met her, I'm with Tomea Gregory in her small studio in Cheltenham. She's now a resident artist at the Wilson, an art museum and gallery space. And she's showing me her art, talking me through what she's doing. Her art's become more expansive and her activism more focused. Perhaps because she stopped thinking of herself first and foremost as a consumer more as a citizen. She tells me about her work as part of Clean Creatives, a group who challenged the advertising industry for their work with fossil fuel companies. And she seems different now, happier, less frantic, more grounded. And it's also like this belief of, I have this uh, piece of art, which is actually where we're recording, it's in my studio, which says, we deserve more than this. And that kind of comes from this idea of like, we can ask for more whether that is like having more time in our lives to just kind of exist as humans or whether it is, you know, 
we're very fortunate that we have something like the NHS that exists, but actually we should have an NHS that is freaking thriving. Or, you know, we should just have clean air and not have pollution in our towns and our cities. How, like, whoa, that's a mad thought, isn't it? I think it's that change feels more possible to her now. An approach that doesn't work, which frames the issue as technical and removed from our lives, that engenders apathy, boredom and frustration. But if we take a second to look at the root causes, it suddenly feels more directly relevant to us, more interesting and perhaps more possible. Because I think like everything, every part of society came from someone's imagination. And so we have to start using our brains to think something different up and put that into play. That's not against the rules. Like we're allowed to think that the world can be very different. If you don't understand the way your system works, it's really easy to think you can't change it. And that's the thing about living within a particular system all your life. It can be really hard to see it for what it is. You just don't have any perspective. It's all around you, the element that supports you, the water you swim in. It just is. But once you understand it better, then you can decide for yourself whether you think changing it really is as radical as they say. So that's what this series investigates, the water we swim in, how our system's been built, why it's not working for us, and how we might change it. This introductory episode's been exploring our frustrations with our current approach, so it may have covered stuff you kind of already know. But the rest of the series will almost certainly surprise you, because we're looking at the familiar from a whole new perspective, asking questions like, how does a plane with broken engines help us think about fixing the economy? Why is an 11-foot-tall girl key in understanding political polarisation? And most importantly, what can the Martin Luther King papers teach us about affecting real change? In upcoming episodes, we're going to be talking to world-leading academics, activists and journalists, people who can see the problem and who have solutions. And in doing that, we start to uncover a story. The story of a project that shaped our world with both its successes and its failures, and which continues to shape our lives today. You've been listening to The Water We Swim In. Next week, we're looking at the philosophical roots of our scientific model and finding out why soil will force us to see the world differently. If you're keen to learn more about the topics discussed today, head on over to our website, waterweswimin.co.uk. We're also on Instagram and Twitter. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes a huge difference and we'd really appreciate it. Producing the episode was me, Tilly Robinson. Co-writing was Matthew Robinson. Mixing by Naked Productions. And original music by Drew McFarlane.